The following program deals with a controversial subject. The theories expressed are not the only possible interpretation. Viewers are invited to make a judgment based on all available information. This is your captain speaking. We are beginning our descent into madness. Open, open, your, 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 my, my, my. And we are back to another edition of What's the Rocky Sound, Frank. Thank you guys for sticking around. I know it's late, but today's going to be one of those shows. Genevieve, how are you doing? I'm doing quite all right. I'm very excited. Our topic tonight is its one that I've been fascinated for a while. I, I first came across this topic in uh, 2011, mm-hmm. and I'm really excited that we're going to get a chance to talk about it tonight with our guest. But real quick, I just want to send a quick shout out to uh, Steve Concatelli. We got a, um, a chance to uh, catch up with him yesterday at the, uh, I believe it was the premiere screening, right, of his documentary, mm-hmm. At a Time, Saving the DeLorean Time Machine. If you're a Back to the Future fan like I am, you got to check it out. It's really fun, and it's full of some really cool footage of them restoring this iconic car. We got a chance to interview him on the show back in October of last year, and it was a blast. That movie's coming out July 19th, so definitely check that out. It's pretty funny as yeah. well. <laughs> and see, and, and the reason why I love covering pop culture and sci-fi is because there, there's a weird crossover between the two. There is, absolutely. Right? It's almost like those crazy ideas that somebody is crazy enough to try and they become reality. Mm-hmm. It's insane. And tonight, we're going to talk about... Exactly that. Exactly that. We're going to be talking about Jack Parsons. Mm-hmm. And as I mentioned earlier, I heard about him the first time in 2011. And honestly, when I started looking into this guy i didn't think he was real to be honest i thought maybe it was one of those <laughs> internet like one of those tumblr like creepypasta stories yeah, yeah, or whatever course. because his life was just so it seems too strange out of this world, yeah right? <laughs> you know and i know our last interview was with jay dayer and mm-hmm. we discussed eyes wide shut and some of the stuff yeah. that happens and it's funny because when you start dwelling into parson's life mm-hmm. There were some eyes wide shut type stuff going on <laughs> at his pad. No, so, yeah, more um, than that. <laughs> so, yeah, tonight our topic of discussion will be the book Sex and Rockets, The Occult World of Jack Parsons, published by Feral House. Mm-hmm. And Genevieve, if you'd be so kind to give us a little introduction for tonight. Well, as you said, yeah, we'll be interviewing Adam Parfrey tonight. He's an American journalist, editor, and the publisher of Feral House Books, whose work in all three capacities frequently centers on unusual, extreme, or so-called forbidden areas of knowledge. Parfrey has garnered quite a name for himself, being called both the most influential underground publisher in post-millennial America, as well as America's most dangerous publisher. Works published by Feral House include Nightmare of Ecstasy, which was the basis for Tim Burton's biopicture, Edward, Psychic Dictatorship in the USA, and Secret and Suppressed, Banned Ideas and Hidden Histories, which has been noted as an influence on Chris Carter's X-Files. Tonight, however, we'll be focusing on Sex and Rockets, the occult world of Jack Parsons. First published in 1999 by Feral House, authored by the mysterious John Carter, whose true identity remains hidden due to it being a pen name. And with that, you know, I have the absolute honor of welcoming America's most dangerous publisher onto the show tonight, Adam Parfrey. Mr. Parfrey, can you hear us okay? Yes, I can. Thank you for the intro. It's our pleasure to have you, really. And boy, what do you think of that? The most dangerous publisher that's quite the uh By the, the title Seattle there weekly i believe <laughs> <laughs> how does that make you feel is that is that something you were expecting to be uh that that's a promotional idea i think but i didn't make this up uh it's been written about me so i thought well this that's wild idea maybe uh i'll i'll that for promotion's sake. <laughs> well, hey, it. <laughs> it does it does not hurt. It does not hurt. Um, Mr. Parfrey, we're obviously going to tackle a very, very fascinating topic here, the, the life of Jack Parsons. But let me start with just a quick question, because I picked up the book Sex and Rockets, and I was fascinated by it. And I wonder who John Carter was. Why was John Carter so mysterious? Just adding more mystery to, to this whole thing. Why was this book written under a pen name? Well, the main reason is that the man who John Carter's his pen name didn't want to lose his government job. 
Oh, wow. By having, you know, writing a book of this nature. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure he, if he would be fired or have problems as a result of that, because the book is uh, nonfiction. It's all backed up by uh, footnotes and information, and it's about Caltech and the space program and then weirder ideas of uh, of occult nature. So I did it because this individual used his actual name for the book. We have a guy who did use his actual name, Robert Anton Wilson, who wrote the introduction. And also, material about Jack Parsons was also in a book I edited decades before this book came out and was uh, called Apocalypse Culture. And um, an occult expert named Michael Staley wrote about Parsons. So we had aspects of um, Parsons' life and earlier books published by Feral House, but we wanted to really get involved with the, the real story behind it. And that's why I, um, I I saw this guy had written a pamphlet and I knew it. So I had, I had him fly out to Los Angeles and get involved with earlier material from the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Caltech about the, um, you know, aeronautic background of Jack Parsons. And it's very interesting because Jack Parsons seemed to move between these two worlds, which to me, at first glance, seemed to be contradictory, right? The field of science and the occult. Most people, I don't think, would ever see a way to connect the two, but Jack Parsons seems to have found a way to do that, didn't he? Yeah, that that intrigues me too, because um, this book was attacked by some scientists, like, how can this be? But then as decades pass and the real information comes out, they couldn't say it didn't happen, but I don't think they feel it promotes science or their scientific institutions properly, you know? Right. But I, I think it's, you know, as you thought, fascinating. And what does this sci-fi material, which is what Jack Parsons was intimately involved with and wrote it and good friends and even housed major sci-fi writer at his house in, in Pasadena. So it's interesting, as a child, he grew up in Pasadena and he was exploring caves down there. They were called the demonic caves, and there were maybe American Indian concepts and conceits of uh, demonic lore there. So when he was raised, he was involved in that idea, maybe not from a, a regular Christian point of view, but um, in the, the lore of the local uh geographical characteristics of Pasadena. And it's interesting because Parsons was born early in the 20th century in in 1914. And these topics, they're still pretty taboo today. I can't imagine how taboo they were back then. And for Parsons at such a young age, I guess, to have an interest in these things was incredibly unusual. Do you know where he got these ideas? Well, as I said, there was the lore of the geography of the area mm-hmm. and people who are living around him would tell them stories about what was going on in these various caves and not only that what would happen with uh, the bridges they were building in the Pasadena area where people were uh, jumping off these bridges and right. committing suicide and they thought that these bizarre and suicidal thoughts going on that had something to do with uh, an occult ideas that was entering their head. Also, at that time, with the sci-fi material, science fiction books were not considered legitimate. They were considered weird ideas that only crazy people would entertain. But there was, you know, these various magazines and uh, pulp uh, type things that would come out uh, with extraordinary illustrations on the cover. Who would ever think back then, in 1914, Mm -hmm. that there were being jets flying off to the moon. That was fantasy. That would never occur. To me, I think what I found most interesting, I I was watching the um, this documentary called uh, Jet Propelled Antichrist, and you're featured in, in that documentary, and if people are interested, definitely check that out. 
It's interesting because the term rocket, the word itself was a dirty word almost, right? It wasn't it was very well accepted. Word, yeah, it had stigma attached to it. Oh, definitely. Yeah, it, it was a kind of a madness, of course. But then there were these scientists and these guys in Theodore von Karman, who basically ran Caltech mm-hmm. and Jepper Laboratories, and he had bizarre ideas himself. He's on a, a United States postage stamp. Is one of the founders of these uh, institutions. He also had a family, a Hungarian family, uh-huh. that he said they were involved with this uh, Jewish occult lore, and they believed in these bizarre concepts. And so people he dealt with weren't basic scientists with white button-down Oxford shirts necessarily, right. but it was bizarre ideas. Here's an interesting little uh, anecdote for people just to add another layer of mystery to the life of Jack Parsons. Charles Russell, who was the founder of the Jehovah's Witness movement, made a prediction that the apocalypse would begin on October 2nd, 1914. Just so happens that's the day that Jack (laughs) Parsons was born. I mean, that's kind of eerie, isn't it? Well, it's even more eerie. It's considering that the musician Prince probably read that quite a few times. He was Jehovah's Witness. Right. Mm -hmm. (laughs) True, true. You mentioned the Hungarian gentleman, Von... um, Karm. Yeah, correct. And it's funny because reading the book, I found out that he was also instrumental in helping bring German scientists after World War II to the U.S. under Project Paperclip. So so this gentleman was definitely a mover and a shaker in these circles, wasn't he? Absolutely. Um, I, I was, I had forgotten what his, he claimed his family was involved with in the creation of the Golem. Right. Yeah, that kind of silent movie style, uh, mm-hmm. monster. Right. There were silent movies based on the Golem and this idea of this, this clay monster that would become alive with a different sort of, uh, incantation. Mm-hmm. I've read about the Golem and, and that before, mm-hmm. and it's, it's some heavy stuff. Before we get into how Jack Parsons met uh, Von Carnell, there's an interesting uh, a mention in the book about something that Jack Parsons did at a very young age to further prove that he was unlike any of the other kids. I mean, for one thing, he was an only child of uh, divorcee parents, which was uh, uncommon at the time. And it seems that at age 13, he attempted and and I guess successfully managed to call forth the devil. What do you know about that? Uh, I mean, that's some heavy stuff for a 13-year-old. I mean, I'll tell you, at 13, (laughs) I was, you know, playing with my friends, uh, you know, like hopscotch or something. (laughs) Well, not being there and only hearing uh, secondhand these ideas, Mm -hmm. um, but but basically what that says to me, how involved he was in these, um, these ideas of occult nature and really having a full belief in them and belief that he had the ability to get involved with that. And later in his life, he was involved with uh, summoning uh, the Antichrist and things that are, you know, out of uh, biblical lore. And, of course, the man he followed, Aleister Crowley, that was his thing as well. It's funny that um, Crowley called himself the Beast and... Parsons uh, went on to call himself the Antichrist. And, yeah. you know, they had like this weird father-son relationship, correct? Can you tell us how that relationship started? I think what had happened is that he found uh, writings of Crowley in books that were published, and he collected this occult material, as well as the pulp novels and so on. And, of course, it was a fascinating idea to this this child. And he got involved with it that way. There was in Hollywood area, not the Pasadena area, an OTO, which is the Ordo Templi Orientis, which is the Crowley uh, follower cult that followed his ideas and his writings and his uh, the logistics of calling up various things. Right. And so he would go into Hollywood and uh, go to these ceremonies in the Hollywood area. Then he met all these various people who were also involved with these incantations and so on. So I think that Aleister Crowley thought this guy was so intelligent and so up 
front, but he would really be the afterrunner of his own cult and really bring it forward in America that he wasn't much involved in before that. So basically, he became the leader of the OTO, but then things he had done and uh, the ceremonies he'd done actually disappointed Crowley as being too nuts or too crazy, even for Crowley. Even for Crowley, right? <laughs> as all this was going on, obviously Parsons was um, more or less a, a, a genius in the field of uh, explosives. I don't know if pyromaniac might be the word, uh, because it, as, as you read more about him, it seems he, he was a bit reckless with his handling of some of the, this very volatile material. But unlike most people in his field who had degrees and, you know, they, they were people that had gone to university and spent a lot of time researching and, and studying all this stuff. Parsons was this self-taught rebel, if you will, to the point where he was being called to be an expert witness in certain court cases involving explosives. Why in particular, you know, we're living in difficult times right now where, you know, we have a, a lot of talk about police corruption and whatnot. And um, it looks like L.A. was no different back then because he was called to a trial. I believe it was a police officer that was uh, killed using a bomb they had been planted in his car. Mm -hmm. Can you tell me a little bit about that case? And what does that tell us about Jack Parsons, the... Uh, the the scientist well that, that that if he's called into a trial as an expert witness his expertise in explosives must have been given a lot of credibility and so you know doing these uh rocket tests out in the area of pasadena where at the time it was um just a sort of a big desert area and it wasn't really built up with big buildings at that time is now but at that time it was just um, a place where you could uh, a deserted area that you could experiment with explosive and so when he was called into this trial as an expert witness he was being a witness against a police detective and people thought that that may have been he might have been a suspect in Parsons' own death with explosive fatality that occurred in the 30s. Personally, I'm not sure that he, he did it, and other mm -hmm. people had speculated it might have been Howard Hughes' people oh, that wow. did build him. And because there hasn't been a definitive idea of how and why Parsons himself died, except that they know that it was an explosive that created his death in Pasadena in his garage uh, from a house he was going to move out of and move to uh, Mexico with his wife, who was this woman, this pretty extraordinary woman named Cameron, right. who Parsons believed he summoned into his life, this redheaded woman, this amazing artist. She appears in a couple Ken Anger movies. Right, you know, right. What's your personal opinion? Do you think he was murdered or it wasn't merely an accident? I think it was likely to be an accident because he was um, packing up a lot of explosives for his move and he might have done it in the right way, I guess. I don't really know for sure what mm -hmm. happened, of course. Nobody of course, does. Of course, yeah. So it's possible he was murdered that way. He was uh, working with a lot of explosives at that time and packing them all up in, in this move. So he had those all those explosives there. It was interesting for me to, as I was reading the book, to, to find so many instances where there was almost this like prophetic angle to Parsons' life in several locations. For one thing, he ran with a crowd of uh, rocket scientists that were dubbed the, the Suicide Squad. Um, yeah. At the same time, one of his uh, close partners in that group was Frank Molina, who apparently had communist tendencies. So he definitely was hanging out with the fringe of society. Why do you think he was he gravitated to to these people? He probably felt more comfortable with uh, weirdos than anybody else, since he was a weirdo per se. <laughs> true, true. You know, Frank Molina actually speaking of this prophetic or self fulfilling prophecy in a way. He apparently wrote a script, and uh, the script was was based around their life and their work. And it seems that Jack Parsons' character ends up dying in an explosion. 
to me, again, that's that's a very eerie coincidence. More than a bit of synchronicity. Right. <laughs> Do you think, I mean, was that just something that was, I hate to say it, but bound to happen. I mean, it is a pretty real danger that if you handle explosives and you do this type of work, you may unfortunately meet an end such as this. Or do you think that maybe there were already forces in Parsons' life that were going to dictate and shape his future? Absolutely. So, but I'm not sure if anybody knew Frank Molina or Foreman, his other, other friend, but they did a lot of experimentation and explosive work and using a kind of a solid fuel that lifted a jet above the um, Earth's gravitational field. Mm-hmm. And that really hadn't happened before them. They're astoundingly prophetic in that way that right. created the whole idea of, uh, of the Apollo flights and the trip to the moon and back. These ideas are pretty extraordinary. They were not considered legitimate at the time, you know? So it's just sort of like he had to be be in a fantasy mode beyond anybody else's belief of the possibility of it occurring. Let me ask you this, because this is something that I've been struggling with for a while now. In your opinion, do you think that Jack Parsons was ahead of his time, or was he at the right place at the right time? Well... Obviously, right place. At the right time. <laughs> I'm not sure if he he could have done it in any other point, right? Uh, because at that time, Caltech and Jet Propulsion Laboratory was just beginning, so it didn't have a legitimacy at that point. But when it did have a legitimacy, they would be a barge pole length from a guy like Jack Parsons, this crazy man, you know? Yeah, and you know it's funny because I guess trying to do this very unpopular thing, which was create a rocket that works. Back in those days, and and again, considering the nature of the project, you would think that this project would just go nowhere. You know, these guys were not going to make a living off of this. But then, you know, you had World War One followed by World War Two, and then the space race. So it seems like Parsons was positioned at the forefront to take advantage of, of what was coming, wasn't he? Oh, absolutely. Uh, How does the OTO fall into all of this? Because to the best of my knowledge, Crowley never met Parsons in person, correct? Right. They communicated through correspondence. And they develop a really, as we mentioned earlier, a very interesting friendship where their relationship really where it it was a father and son relationship. Uh, The book obviously points out that this could be due to the fact that Parsons lacked a father figure growing up. But Parsons seems to have struggled with parental figures right down to um, his mother, who he constantly seems to make reference about this Oedipus complex. How did this thing play into, you know, the rituals in the OTO? And what, what was the point of trying to figure out something like, his Oedipus complex and how to overcome it. Well, the OTO, of course, it was an occult society that had to be open to really far out and unconservative ideas and being open to a a change in the world. And that's what the whole partisanship with the Antichrist was about. The Antichrist was not like the usual Christian church it was like the Illuminati was way back when in the early Renaissance was mm-hmm. that it was the against the the Catholic hierarchy at the time. That's why they called it the Illuminati, and that's why it was such a a hated group. Mm-hmm. Now all the speculation of what the Illuminati is and the mm-hmm. Illuminati is still going, and the, these rap guys say they're part of the Illuminati <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> and all that, but um. No, it was another perspective of the monarchy and the Catholic Church and the people in charge at the time and being an outsider and having strange ideas enter into the whole world at that point. And it was also interesting for me to read how the uh, OTO originally, uh, Proly had made it kind of this this pseudo-Masonic order uh, you know, that he had borrowed a lot from masonry. I mean, he himself, I believe, was a high degree Freemason, among other titles that he held. 
in subsequent years, he seemed to move away from masonry. But something that was interesting to note, because this kind of carried over into Crowley's OTO, was the use of psychedelics and Masonic rituals years and years back. And that was something that was a very integral part of Crowley's order, correct? Well, yeah, the use of drugs and going against the whole idea of uh, who you have sex with, including your parents, mm-hmm. was affected by Crowley and used as part of his ritualism and his writings. And so Jack Parsons' own writings speculated on this idea, and that's all that strange matter that involves Jack Parsons' mother, Ruth, who he was close to in many ways you're not supposed to be close to. Wow. And so when Jack Parsons died, his mother, uh, right after that, killed herself because she was devastated. She, they were so close. Yeah, no, he was uh, the apple in her eye, I suppose. You know, her, yeah, yeah. <laughs> her baby, uh, that's for sure. Among, well, apparently the, that relationship went beyond that mother-son <laughs> bond, I suppose. Now, there was a bit of friction that began to happen between Parsons and his uh, fellow, you know, rocket scientists. There was a bit of friction. Uh, Frank Molina, you know, in the book, uh, he's quoted as saying that he wasn't happy with Parsons. He seems to be, uh, or he seemed to have been spending a lot of time messing with the occult and some other little projects and not their main project at hand. Nonetheless, Jack Parsons, we still see his name right there on JPL. And some people believe that JPL doesn't just stand for Jet Propulsion Labs, but Jack Parsons Lab. There is no way to downplay the importance of Jack Parsons' work, even though he wasn't, as we mentioned, a degreed scientist, correct? Right, exactly. And as far as some of the chemicals that he worked with and compounds, it seems like he was also doing a bit of uh, alchemy. I'm hoping I'm using the term correctly, but it seems like under the guise of science and research, it just afforded him the chance to kind of do all these crazy experiments that I don't think most of us would be able to do, right? It was cost for him at the time to get all those chemicals and, and all that. And the early Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Caltech only uh, got a, a bit of the expense that was required to do these tests and so on. So, he, you know, he was fully involved with this to on a very personal level. And it's really astounding to think that this crazy guy who may have had sex with his mother created uh, modern rocketry and space programs. Yeah, and the thing is that he was almost like a magnet. As you read the book, all these names began to pop up and you began to learn about who they were and what they did. Obviously, he was born here in L.A. The movie industry was was blossoming and he basically became in contact with celebrities, right? Like I know uh, Jane Wolfe was one of them, and I believe uh, John Carradine was mentioned in the book as well as attending the OTO uh, temple that was in Pasadena. Why do you think to this day we hear about celebrities being involved in some weird stuff? What do you think lures some of these influential people to seek out some of these occult groups? Well, I'm going to throw out another name, Manly Palmer Hall. Manly P. Hall, who created that group in Los Feliz, and we have a book out about him. It's a biographical book, and it's called Master of the Mysteries. In the book, you'll see photographs of uh, Bella Lugosi and other stars in the area, and they got involved with uh, this sort of strange stuff. Why they did, we don't know for sure, but they were, they were drawn to it, and maybe because actors, per se, and dramas have a strange uh, aspect to them, that they didn't feel repelled by odd occult ideas. Like I said, to me, it's very uh, uh, baffling at times when you see some of the, the people and that, you know, work in the entertainment industry and join some of the stuff that seems a bit offbeat. And I think a lot of us just chalk it off to, uh, you know, they're just being eccentric or something. I just find it fascinating that Parsons invoked Pan, or at least said a prayer to the god Pan before every rocket launch. (laughs) Yeah, what was the purpose of that? He seemed to have a a certain affinity towards the Greek god Pan, correct? Yeah. 
Well, he felt it provided him assistance to the, the good effect of an experiment, that if he invoked Pan, the explosives would go better. Right. Maybe he Wait, who knows? Uh, maybe it worked. <laughs> yeah, maybe it didn't work. <laughs> it, you never know until you try it, right? Um, now, when uh, the group uh, began to actually get some money for their work, you know, there was interest by the military and they were trying to develop rockets to help planes take off in short runways and those type of applications. So the group finally had some funds and it seems like Parsons took his share of the cash and put it in a house up there in Pasadena that kind of became, yeah, like the eyes wide shut mansion, I think to some extent. Uh, why don't you tell me a little bit of this house in Pasadena that Jack occupied and some of the, the, the crowd that he seemed to favor because he was renting some of the rooms out, but he had a very specific criteria for who he would rent out to, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. That was a, nice large mansion it's nicknamed the parsonage and so he was kind of real estater to weirdos <laughs> and right. among them being um l ron hubbard who founded the church of scientology right and when i was doing research on this book and getting material about hubbard because he was very involved in parsons life and mm -hmm. his experience with them I was followed around by uh, people from the Church of Scientology. Oh, you're wow, kidding. Wow, that's scary. That's scary. I was stalked by <laughs> these wow. guys. Wow. So was it something that you felt maybe uh, I'm getting too close to this? Uh, did you ever hesitate to maybe not probe too much the Scientology angle? Well, if I didn't, the book would be seen as a lie because he was so important in Parsons' life and so much a part of that story. And then I just wrote them a letter, the church and people are involved with that, what the objective of the book was. I said, L. Ron Hubbard's not in the title or subtitle, but if he was not in the book, the book would be seen to be a lie. Mm -hmm. And every claim that's in the book, I fully backed up and so on. So I said, you know, I don't, I, I have no interest in making the church look bad per se, but we have to be clear that it's this is part of the story. Yeah, true. Yeah. After they, that, I wasn't really bothered so much. Okay, well, yeah, because I was going to ask if after yeah, that, were they like, that. okay, you can, <laughs> yeah. When the book came out, there was a story on the book and the, the Los Angeles Times, and then the Church of Scientology asked me to co-wrote a letter to the LA Times <laughs> disputing the uh, articles they wrote. Oh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't dispute the article at all. So that was their problem, not mine. Right. right. Mm -hmm. Going back to Jack Parsons' uh, purchase of this huge mansion, the neighbors, as you can imagine, were a, a bit suspicious of some of the activity that, that would go on in the house. I mean, in the book, we read about, you know, neighbors calling the cops for everything from like noise disturbances to, <laughs> I think one of, one of the things that they describe is seeing a pregnant woman jump through fire, something like nine times or something. Oh, wow. So there was definitely some real bohemian activities, to say the least. Bohemianism. <laughs> yeah, it's a, it's a subtle term, I suppose. <laughs> occult, I guess. We should, we should just go with that. Uh, there were some serious occult activities going in, in that house. But Parsons always seems to have managed to get away with it, didn't he? It's, you know, nobody kicked him out. Nowadays, you hear about celebrities throwing a party and the whole neighborhood signs a petition and gets the person out of there. But Jack Parsons seems to have been able to sweet talk his way through a lot of what would be for other people, you know, legal problems. Well, yeah. But another thing that we may be overlooking is mm -hmm. the fact that he wasn't in that mansion for too long really uh that he was drawn out to other areas he lived in the a desert uh for a while so it was not specifically he was there all the time and uh carrying on in this way okay because at least the the number of stories that i read in the book i got the idea that they probably uh uh, lived there for a few years, but it seems that just a lot happened, I guess, on a daily basis. We're almost to the top of the break, but I wanted to share something with the folks listening at home because we actually have quite a bit of information about Jack Parsons. We got his birth date and the place that he was born and the time that he was born. And 
normally I'm pretty 50-50 about astrology and things of that nature. I know you, Genevieve, you're a little bit more intrigued. Yeah, I think, yeah, yeah, you're more open to it. But every now and then, you know, I got to hand it to you when you show me stuff that it's like, yeah, okay, there's something to it. One of the things that I got turned on to uh, a while back was this whole issue of birth charts. And to do it correctly, you have to kind of have all this information of a person, right? Date, place, time of birth, et cetera, et cetera. So, you know, I just went to like whatever website where you can put all this info and get a birth chart, not thinking much would happen. And it's funny because I started reading the birth chart for Jack Parsons and I was um, quite surprised. I'm just going to read a few excerpts here. And Mr. Parfrey, you tell me if this sounds kind of close to to the guy we're discussing here tonight. Uh, According to the birth chart, it says that... uh, Extremely active by nature, you like to get around, meet people, and do different things. Very restless, you can't seem to stay put. You need to be involved in several projects at once in order to keep your mind stimulated. You like to read books and write letters and to talk constantly. Seemingly ageless, you will always appear to be much younger than you really are. A jack-of-all-trades, ironic, right? (laughs) A (laughs) jack-of-all-trades, you are lively and versatile. Uh, let me skip forward here. Very sociable. You enjoy being with others and definitely prefer not to be alone. You have strong feelings and are extremely sensitive. You tend to react emotionally to every situation you come across. You are a born investigator. You are fascinated by secrets and mysteries and unanswered questions of any kind. Your feelings about others are deep, powerful, intense, and complex. Your likes and dislikes are strong and intense, never casual or superficial. You are known for your persistence and willful obsession. Your personal growth occurs when you have the freedom to do things in a new and interesting way. This brings out your natural inventiveness. You're an individualist and you're also attractive to mass movements that emphasize social betterment and you will devote much time and energy to their efforts. I mean, this is pretty close to the Jack Parsons we learn about in this book, correct? It is, yeah. It's. It, I found it. Yeah, I found it to be quite it interesting. I mean, interesting, I yeah. yeah. Like I said, I'm always kind of fifty-fifty in these things, but it's stuff like this that <laughs> kind of trips me out. It's a fun. It's a fun read. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. I. I think I did it for myself once, and it was. <laughs> it was actually kind of kind of scary as well. Before we go to the break, uh, Mr. Parfrey, you obviously run a, a very interesting publishing house. And you seem to focus on a particular type of uh, books, correct? Nonfiction, usually, and ones that have uh, an unusual perspective to them most of the time. That I can agree with, that idea. Is that where your interests lie as well? Certainly. If things are not written about or discussed socially much or in, in literature, it, you go, well, why is this left out? What's going on here? So that provokes my interest. And was Sex and Rockets the first book published about the life of Jack Parsons? It is the first book on Parsons. And there's another book called Strange Angel. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The other book doesn't really have a material that I couldn't find or was not in the book, but Mm -hmm. it was more a literary life of the time. Mm -hmm. And so not much in, in terms of material about Parsons' life itself. Right, right. No, yeah, we we actually have a copy of that book as well. But yeah, we can see the Sex and Rockets, as the name implies. It's almost like the first half of the book, we learn of Jack Parsons and his work. As John Parsons, really. And on the latter half, we we see Jack Parsons, the occultist. Although maybe I should be careful with which names I use because he seems... John and Jack. Yeah, yeah, they should be used separately. It seems like Jack Parsons was the occultist part of Parsons, and mm-hmm. and John Parsons was a scientist, correct? Well, went by John Whiteside. Whiteside was the name of his paternal name mm-hmm. that he picked up and used. Um, but we have a strange man with odd life because it included both perspectives of science and occult. But I think that Jack Parsons would think that um, occultism had a very scientific aspect to it. So he looked at it differently than you or I would, maybe. True. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, Mr. Parfrey, would you be so kind to just hang on the line for a few minutes while we take a break? And then when we come back, I really want to dig into the the relationship 
between Jack Parsons and Elbron Hubbard because a lot happened between those two. And uh, obviously, we all know that Elron Hubbard went on to uh, form the Church of Scientology. Mm -hmm. And it seems like Jack Parsons, for many years up until recently, kind of faded into obscurity. Nobody yeah, really remembered yeah. who Jack Parsons was until now. So, uh, Mr. Parfrey, if you'd be so kind, could you just hang on the line for us and we'll resume the conversation on the other side of the break? My pleasure. Awesome. And we're going to go with a, actually a track that I remember just kind of thinking of the lyrics and they were quite fitting to the topic that we're discussing tonight. We're going to go out with a little bit of Pink Floyd. This song is called Brain Damage. What's of the Rock is coming right back in just a few. Enjoy this one, guys. West of the Rockies With Frank Open, open Your, your, your Mind, mind And we are back to the second hour west of the Rockies. I'm Frank. Thank you guys for sticking around. I know it's late, but boy, we're having a really good time here tonight. As mm -hmm. always, I'm Engineer Frank on Twitter, west of the Rockies on Facebook, Genevieve Uway on Twitter. Correct. Don't forget to follow the show on Twitter at WTR Radio and uh, check out the website, WTRRadio.com, where you can subscribe to our YouTube, iTunes, Stitcher, and all that good stuff um, to keep up with all the latest interviews and uh, videos and all the cool stuff that we post there for you guys to check out. Our guest tonight is Adam Parfrey of Feral House Publishing. You can follow them on Twitter at Feral House. That's F-E-R-A-L and house. And uh, the Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash Feral House. And uh, you can check out some of the books they got, including Sex and Rockets, which is a really, really fascinating, mm -hmm. fascinating book to read. Coming out of the break, we heard some Pink Floyd, very appropriate considering it's from the album Dark Side of the Moon. And uh, let me bring uh, our guest tonight, Mr. Parfrey, back into the conversation because I want to talk about an honor that was bestowed posthumously to uh, Parsons, which was uh, naming a crater after him on the dark yeah. side of the moon, right? Which is almost a very... Um, symbolic gesture because we see the moon this big bright ball staring at us from the sky at night yet the dark side of the moon that we never get to see it's quite battered and beaten <laughs> and it's almost like that was parsons the rocket scientist was this guy that everybody loved co-workers said he used to tell jokes and love making people laugh but in his occult practices he definitely went pretty dark didn't he <laughs> I would suppose you could say that. What's interesting is that on Caltech in Pasadena, once a year you can visit it. It's open to the public, but not more than that one time a year. And mm -hmm. then on that time, you can also see these statues uh, they created of Parsons and Molina and Ed Foreman and other people in the Suicide Squad. Mm -hmm. That's pretty astounding that they, they took that very strange and out there perspective of their history. And ironically, we have a movie coming out soon called The Suicide Squad. I don't know if they got the name from Parson and, and his crew. Correct me if I'm wrong, Mr. Parfrey, but wasn't a plaque unveiled at JPL celebrating the anniversary of the beginning of these uh, uh, rocket tests by Parsons and The Suicide Squad also on Halloween, correct? I think that's probably true, but it's the fact that I don't think they acknowledge the Halloween part of it. <laughs> yeah, I would think they would try to... Uh, uh, Downplay Yes. Yeah. <laughs> Parsons already had but, a lot of uh, baggage in there. But they have the, the bronze plaque there. You can go up and see it on the day of the uh, year that the, that's open to the public. And it's interesting that JPL, it's located near the dam called Devil's Gate. And also nearby to, as, as you mentioned earlier, people are jumping off a bridge in Pasadena that nowadays we know uh, as Suicide Bridge, which is a, a popular paranormal investigation uh, uh, hotspot. Yeah. Do you think that was done on purpose or do you think that's just Parsons, that's just where they happen to be working at? I can't tell you for, for certain, <laughs> um, but, you know, it, it is amazing that these ideas, they come together 
with Parsons Life and these uh, places worked in and how the space program started there and all the bizarre aspects of it. I just want to think that it was intentional, yeah. whether it is or not. One aspect of this whole thing that I wanted to talk to you about before we get into Hubbard and Parsons was in the book, there's a mention of how many people that were involved in occult practices actually worked for governments in an intelligence capacity. You know, going back to like John D, I guess he used to sign his name as 007, which is really interesting. And um, obviously Crowley, I believe he worked with MI5, I think. Mm -hmm. Crowley. Genevieve should know she's British. And uh, here's fun fact. She shares a birthday with Alistair Crowley, of all things. I do. And I, and I studied at the same institution. Yeah, and you went to Cambridge. That, yeah, <laughs> yeah that's, that's scary, right? I mean, I'm going to have to keep my eye on you because who knows what's going to happen. Um, <laughs> she has a lot of access to good drugs, though. But, and now I know why uh, I see her acting funny every now and then. But... Yeah, the book points that out, which I find really interesting that, yeah, a lot of people that, well, not a lot, but a certain number of people of note did participate in occult practices while at the same time working with the government in very delicate operations. Do you think that this is, uh, again, to your knowledge, something that is done on purpose or is just the way things play out sometimes? Well, you're talking about John D. That's, you know, 1601, mm -hmm. right? We're not talking about 20th century. Right. Um, you know, I think it's been overplayed about that. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, I can't, I can't join you in being too speculative about it. But um, why are people involved? Like, what, why is Jack Parsons like uh, involved with uh, government intelligence? Because when you're involved with war materials, which was used like um, aircraft and so on. Mm -hmm. That's going to be involving um, intelligence agencies. Absolutely. Right. Let's jump to the year 1945, which is the year that L. Ron Hubbard meets Jack Parsons in, in person. And boy, if this isn't an explosive combination, if you pardon the pun, <laughs> uh, because yeah, I mean, these, these two guys were, were some, I mean, we already know that Jack Parsons was an interesting character, but can you tell me a little bit about L. Ron Hubbard back in 1945? What was he up to in those days? He was a science fiction writer, and that's how he made his money. And excuse me for saying that, but he was a bit of a hack and did a lot of writing for pulp things. And you know what we think of pulp things are not necessarily the upper echelon of fiction writing, you know. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, of course, Parsons appreciated that. But not only that, Hubbard uh, had a lot of stories of being involved with um, Asian trips and being here and there in the military. And he really uh, spun a good story. That's what he did very well. You know, it's really interesting. I mean, I don't know if this is true or not. Uh, maybe when you were looking into Scientology, uh, you came across this. I can't remember where I read it, but I mean, it could have been speculation, just to put a disclaimer on my statement. But some people believe that Hubbard got the idea for Scientology from Crowley's OTO. Have you come across anything that would indicate that that was the case? Well, yeah, there's a lot of speculation about that because... Hubbard read a lot of Crowley, and he got involved with some material about the Church of Scientology that up online, and there are aspects of uh, Crowley's own writings and Scientological documents. So it's not far off uh, idea mm -hmm. there, and of course they were. He was doing various OTO occult ideas then he was being uh when he, what do you call it when you jot down what's happening at the time when uh jack parsons doing uh of oh, ascribing i think it was like he was a scribe yeah yeah a scribe exactly so he was being the scribe of these occult ceremonies and some of them are really strange and bizarre and very sexual very drug oriented and so there he was he was there you can't get out of that that was it's the real life of these guys. Now, what Hubbard or the people at the Church of Scientology say that he was assigned by the U.S. military to 
uh, do that. I, I find that difficult to believe in a lot of ways. Yeah, yeah. I, I read that part of the book and I agree with you. I think that, uh, the Church of Scientology just has a really good PR or something to come up <laughs> and, you know, plug the holes in the boat. No pun intended because he was in the Navy, but yeah. Also, Hubbard later married, um, Parsons' girlfriend, Sarah Northrup, and that's in the whole history of uh, the Church's technology and Hubbard's life. So he was basically stealing Parsons' girl. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and yeah. also getting from Parsons a lot of money for boats he was purchasing. And then that became a legal issue later when uh, Parsons had to sue Hubbard to get his boats back. Wow. He stole, basically. And Parsons won that legal contest. All this is, you can back it up with all this, in, you know. The, it wasn't the, a happy relationship. <laughs> well, I, I, it started happy enough, I think, uh, before there were uh, uh, girl issues there. Because reading the book, it seems like they hit it off quite well, right? They found that they had a lot of things in common. And, you know, they were both, you know, lively guys. People yeah. seem to gravitate towards them. But what I find interesting is that following Crowley and his teachings, you know, Parsons seemed to try really hard to, as he would put it, he was above petty jealousy. And he actually encouraged his partners, Betty not being the first one, of course, to seek out other lovers, basically. And that's how she ended up in the arms of L. Ron Hubbard, correct? Yeah, presumably. (laughs) And it's Weird because I keep finding these uh, similarities with like, you know, a, a couple of cults that I've studied in the past where there's this almost this incestuous relationship with mm-hmm. their partners. Jack Parsons had a, a strange relationship with a fetishized incestuous relationship. Yeah. For example, Carlos Castaneda and some of the stuff that he did. It's almost like a, I don't know if it's fair to call it a characteristic of some of these organizations but parsons apparently you know as i mentioned had these kind of strange little relationships with women in the way he viewed them up until you know the whole scarlet woman phase and babylon working which is something that i would like to talk about shortly but with the topic of sex magic um well go back to alistair crowley a bit here because he advertised for bizarre looking humans to sex magic with and they were looking for the most bizarre and hard to take and crazy ideas that go beyond the norm and i think a huge part of what parsons was following it's definitely something that that's about, very strange yeah, well, it's uh, at about times breaking about. the boundaries i think that's, yeah it that's seems always like always what it's been about now Hubbard, as we mentioned, uh, he was a scribe during this ritual that Jack Parsons pretty much became obsessed with uh, called Babylon Working. Can you tell us a little bit about what Babylon Working is? Well, it was a quest for the Antichrist, which, of course, was the OTO quest as well. And so these were uh, exotic rituals to follow that idea and um, required a lot of strange practices to follow that concept. And one of the things that, as you mentioned, Hubbard had to kind of sit there and write everything that was happening. And from what I read in the book, these were quite elaborate rituals. You know, they would last about an hour and they had to be recited by memory. At what point did Parsons and Hubbard's relationship crack? Was it that business deal gone wrong? I'm uncertain of that. But what happened with Hubbard is that he took the woman, his Mm -hmm. girlfriend, and that was a big deal for Jack Parsons mm-hmm. at that time. And it, it really spun him in a bad way. And he missed the woman. And I guess he might have been even self-hating as a mm-hmm. result of that, that he couldn't keep up with the idea of sharing his girl. And I'm, I'm not sure, but it was later when uh, he received letters from Crowley about, you know, he was complaining to Crowley about, Hubbard's practices and what Crowley said. Why are you dealing with this liar, this scumbag? (laughs) (laughs) And Parsons followed was ridiculing him about the whole thing. 
Yeah, it's it's funny because you definitely see Crowley for the type of person that he was. You know, they, he was dubbed the, the the wickedest man on on earth and whatnot. But he definitely had an interest in Parsons, and he was kind of looking out for Parsons right until Parsons resigned from the OTO. It seems right. He he was meant to be like the heir to the throne, I suppose. Well, he, the earlier thought that that's what exactly what he would be the heir to the throne from Crowley's uh, perspective. Now, one interesting story also found in the book in regards to that business deal between Parsons and Hubbard is uh, Parsons went out to Florida to track Hubbard and Betty down. And, uh, you know, when he got there, I guess the ship had set sail and he apparently went back to his room and did like a ritual or something, didn't he? To like stop. Him. Yeah, very successful one because it created a storm condition. Blew the boat back towards shore. That is so... That's incredible. Yeah, you know... <laughs> That's interesting to think about. I find myself torn, Mr. Parkfree, between... I talk to a lot of people... Well, not a lot of people. I've talked to several people who are involved in... And some of these practices, and a lot of them tell me, oh, you know, it's, it, they, you know, it doesn't mean anything. It's just kind of like, oh, you know, we just do it for fun. Symbolism. Yeah, yeah you know, it's just yeah. like something that we do, et cetera, et cetera. But in your opinion, I mean, do these practices have any power or are they just harmless rituals that people do just to, you know, that's their idea of having fun? You mean, do I believe that these rituals work uh -huh. as in a ritualist way? Yeah. Yeah, I, I think they do. Yeah. And the reason I ask you is, like I said, when, when I've asked people, they seem to downplay it quite mm -hmm. a bit. And in my head, I wonder, well, you know, if it's something people do for fun, they spend an awful lot of time, you know, memorizing all these things and all these yeah. gestures and things like that. So, you know, they're obviously believing this, that this there is more than just a bit of playing around. <laughs> right. Yeah. Now, with Hubbard out of the picture, obviously, after this business deal, they kind of, you know, went their separate ways. Parsons seems to have fallen on hard times. You know, I was reading that, you know, his security clearance was taken away. Uh, he wasn't doing very good in businesses, having, you know, sold his share of, was it Galsic that got bought out? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, so he wasn't doing too well. And it was during this time that I guess he resigned from the OTO, a bit disillusioned. Obviously, Alistair Crowley was none too happy about it. Now, let's talk, obviously, one of the biggest mysteries in Jack Parsons' life. Uh, ironically enough, his death. We kind of talked about it earlier uh, mm -hmm. during the show. And, you know, a lot of people suspect that there could have been foul play extending from a trial where he was uh, an expert witness, uh, which was this police trial. However, I was reading an interesting theory in the book that he wasn't just moving chemicals in his garage from one place to another. There's people that believe he was actually trying to bring about a golem-type figure into existence. Have you read anything about that? Oh, yeah, yeah, definitely. And do you think that that could have been something that he was doing? Do you think he was, even at that stage in his life, do you think he was trying to fulfill his Babylon working ritual? Yeah, absolutely. I, I don't think that he had the best idea of what could possibly occur mm. as a side effect from the rituals. It's kind of scary to think that, you know, when the police got there after this explosion, he had quite a bit of explosive material mm -hmm. around the house, yeah. uh, <laughs> which it wasn't very common back in those days to do so. But it seems like he was still quite devoted to his scientific endeavors as well. Or do you think that, that it, it were explosives something that uh, is used in occult rituals much? I don't know if about its use in occult rituals. But certainly was used in his um, jet space wartime ritualism. He was a guy who had that stuff. He used it to great positive effect for himself. It wasn't just some crazy material he had for no real reason around the house. Now, one of the interesting quotes in the book is uh, one by uh, Kenneth Inger, 
who points to Jack Parsons and his experiments as being the uh, source for the rash of uh, UFO sightings that occurred in the 40s and 50s in the U.S., which I found really interesting. I mean, I, I wasn't expecting UFOs to come into the picture of Jack Parsons. Did you find that being something possible? I mean, I think the gist of it was that Parsons did open up a portal and that these flying saucers basically came through. Well, it's an interesting perspective, isn't it? You know, I how can you be definitive or <laughs> in any way? Right. Uh, around those, those ideas. <laughs> but I guess it but shows how you, people were fascinated with Parsons, right? I mean, as far as what he maybe accomplished. Well, you look at these Crowley beings that he had entertained in his life. Right. And he also did drawings of them. They really looked like, um, ETs. They had that particular look. Yeah, it's true. Yeah, I think it was Lamb, the uh, the one that he drew, one of the ones, or at least one of the more popular ones that, that maybe people have seen. That, yeah, it looks like your typical gray alien. I want to know what you think about the fact that, you know, a lot of people think that JPL stands for Jack Parsons Lives or Jack Parsons Labs or something along those lines. Do you think Jack Parsons had a play in coming up with that name? I don't think so because when he was Working with those people, he was mm -hmm. thought of being, you know, like half mad himself. They wanted to distance themselves a bit from him. And so I don't think that those were, you know, so Jack Parsons ideas so mm -hmm. much as they worked with jets. They worked with the propulsion of jets. Mm -hmm. It was laboratory of sorts. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, yeah uh, I was just wondering. Uh, Mr. Parfrey, before we let you go, Sex and Rockets came out in 1999, if I'm not mistaken. And I know that, that the other book on Parsons came out, I think, in 2011 or somewhere around there. Mm -hmm. So it's a bit early to tell. But do you think that this will change or amplify Jack Parsons' legacy in any way for future generations? I got to say there wasn't. He was a very obscure figure. And when the book came out, there was all this write-ups on Parsons in magazines, newspapers. So that alone shows vital interest in him. So I say, yeah, yeah, I think that was influential in some ways. Absolutely. I definitely encourage people to check out this book, Sex and Rockets, The Occult World of Jack Parsons by John Carter and uh, a foreword by Robert Anton Wilson on Feral House Publishing. I really enjoyed the foreword, actually. <laughs> yeah, no, it was great. And it's actually filled with a lot. You know, there's, in very, my opinion, the, there's not a lot of uh, pictures of Parsons, or at least I thought so. But luckily in this book, they have a lot of cool photographs of Parsons and the Suicide Squad, mm -hmm. uh, you know, working on rockets. Where can people get this book, uh, Mr. Parfrey? Well, they can get it from Amazon or they can get it from our website, feralhouse.com. Get it that way. Awesome. And uh, see our other materials that we uh, offer. And also, right now, the new catalog, physical book catalog came out. So if you send us a dollar to our address, we will send you the physical catalog. It's like, you know, 24, 36 pages, all those uh Various books, I think, are might be interesting to your uh, listeners. Absolutely, I was going through the books on the website, and yeah, believe me, there's yeah. there's, there's a quite lot a, more browsing to do. Mr. Parfrey, thank you so much for joining us tonight to talk about this really fascinating figure that thank is Jack so, Parsons so and the book Sex and Rockets. It really means a lot that you took the time to be with us tonight. Well, thank you guys for being interested. I appreciate the evening here. Thank it's our so pleasure. Much. It's our pleasure. Enjoy the rest of your evening. Take okay. care. That was. Adam Parfrey of Feral House, the publisher for this great book, Sex and Rockets, The Occult World of Jack Parsons. I literally enjoy this book uh, more than I should, I yeah, think. Yeah, I know that. It's pretty freaky, like the stuff that happens there and like the rituals I did. And why didn't you tell us a bit about the Babylon ritual, you know, when they essentially took out the, the well, fetus, yeah, it, I know. I remember hearing about that. that they, yeah, they, they apparently took out the fetus in the book. And put in it the book, it, the it says that the Cameron, the the young lady that he was uh, performing this sex magic ritual with, she actually had two abortions. So it oh seems gosh. that yeah, that kind of creates a I guess a bit of a contradiction because on the one side I've heard that yeah, that he extracted the fetus and they used it for something else. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's it's crazy because when Parsons died due to that explosion, 
it seems like his arm was blown off completely. His other arm and his both legs were broken and he had like a huge hole in his jaw. Mm-hmm. The people that, that lived in the other rooms in this house uh, went down to the garage where the explosion happened, and he was still alive when they found him. No, that, that's totally gross. Oh, yeah. Like, he was so alive gross. until, like, the ambulance got there, took him to the hospital, and apparently his last words... Can you guess what his last words were? No. like I. Literally you can't, right? No, like, you I can't. can't. I wasn't done. Oh, oh yeah. That, those are good last words. Yeah, like I said, if you if you want to learn about Jack Parsons, definitely grab this book. It's really, really fascinating. When I first heard about him, I thought he he couldn't be real. There was no way that somebody lived this incredible, incredible life. And what he did, I mean, I know a lot of people call Alistair Crowley the one that birthed this new age, you know, a lot of people use that term. But obviously Parsons definitely played a, a big role. In all that, and I always kind of joke about the unholy trinity, you know, as far as like yeah. Crowley, Parsons, and Hubbard. It's like all three of them influence, I guess, uh, the 20th century. Parsons. In, in a very occulty way. Yeah. Parsons, you know, I guess he's barely getting his due in that regard, uh, thanks to books like, you know, Sex and Rockets. Mm-hmm. So we definitely encourage people to check that out. Anyways, guys, this has been a lot of fun. We're going to, well, during the break, I played some Pink Floyd from the album Dark Side of the Moon. Uh-huh. So we're going to go out with uh, another track from Dark Side of the Moon, because that whole album, I could literally, well, I have, I've listened well, to that album well on repeat that. while watching The Wizard of Oz. <laughs> have you tried that? It's interesting. <laughs> I've heard of that, I've heard of that. It's like sex magic without the sex, <laughs> or the magic, really. All right. No, all but right, it's fun. All right, just <laughs> we're going to go out with the great gig in the sky. Take care, be safe, God bless, don't do anything too crazy. want to see you back next week. If you miss any part of this interview, definitely check out our website, wotrradio.com, which I'll have it there, along with some other cool stuff. We still got our Contact in the Desert review that's coming up. Mm-hmm. We're going to be uh, posting a review on that screening that we attended yesterday. Shout out again to Steve Concatelli. Go grab that if, you, if you're if you a Back to the Future fan, or heck, even if you're not, if you're just like, are a car guy you're gonna dig it as well it's yeah, out of it's time it's a fun watch it's kind of like watching an episode of Top Gear or something you know yeah like no it, I enjoyed it fun, people were laughing it was it was pa- and, yeah. the pacing was great yeah. it was a lot great, of fun great. out of time saving that DeLorean time machine comes out July 19th and uh, with that we're gonna listen to The Great Gig in the Sky by Pink Floyd take care guys right. see you next week West of the Rockies with Frank the Engineer on the Independent FM Los Angeles